0: the akc podcast an audio resource for staff at king's college london following the associateship of king's college program the akc is an inclusive research-led program of lectures which explores diverse religious and cultural perspectives for more information visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash akc handouts presentation slides and further reading links for this lecture are available on the akc keats area Okay, so today, um, as Claire kind of suggested, I'm going to introduce you to a slightly quirky building in London, which we can see here. It's the one with the kind of triangular roof. Okay, that's, that's our focus for today. What I want to try and convince you in the next 50 minutes or so is that this particular building gives us a unique insight into London's history. But on the surface, um, it's fairly nondescript, it's fairly ordinary um, and this is actually something that's confirmed in Hermione Hophouse's kind of extraordinary survey of London, where she thinks about the buildings across the city. And I've got a quotation on how she describes South Key Plaza to us. She talks about how it stands on a five-acre sou- site on the south side of the West India Dock uh, that was previously occupied by Shed 19. Um, it was developed by Marples International and designed by Richard Surfit, who, who did the uh, centre point Um, You might recognise that name. Seven-storey structure, and it was built in the sort of mid-80s, containing over 100,000 square feet of office accommodation uh, and was begun as a speculative office block, but um, uh, was acquired actually during the construction process by the Daily Telegraph, um, who were relocating from Fleet Street just around the corner down to uh, the Docklands. And their relocation saw a kind of open plan layout uh, in this building and actually um, an, an additional feature of a shopping mall Um, with 14 retail units, which was opened in 1989. Okay, so again, I think we've got this kind of sense of a kind of -of run-of-the-mill office space in London, something we're familiar with, something that doesn't necessarily stand out to us. But what I want to try and suggest is it's significant for at least three reasons that I'm going to try and map today. Um, And I've kind of outlined them for you here. Um, Number one, and that was kind of hinted at, I think, in the, the reference to... Southwest India Dock. Okay, it was it's constructed on a historical site, which teaches us something about London's relationship with globalization, and I want to suggest also multiculturalism. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is actually thinking about the motivations that underpinned and drove and gave momentum to the building's construction and the insights this can actually offer us into London's experience of a sort of post-industrial gentrification. So that's another theme I want us to think about. And then finally, and this hasn't been hinted at thus far, it was dramatically destroyed by an IRA bomb in 1996. Um, And I'm going to have some footage, actually, of that explosion, just to warn you. Um, And the fallout from this, I think, really tells us much about not only how terrorism is figured and signifies in this city, but actually also something about the future of urban development in this particular part of London. And as you can see, I've got two lovely images here from the architects' designs for the building. This is before it was constructed and it was just a figment of the architect's imagination. And there is something I think we can say about the kind of white masculine image of enterprise and work in this part of London, and I might try and draw that out as we go forward. But at this point, the building is, as I said, a speculative office development to be commenced in the enterprise zone of the Isle of Dogs in the heart of the London Docklands. And if there's any geographers in here, that phrase enterprise zone might ring a bell. It might sound this kind of signal about the the fusion of private development working at the behest of public government. That is land owned by the government being offered to private developers to construct on. And it's a planning policy closely linked to this concept of gentrification. And gentrification as a tool for London's urban planning is certainly one of the stories this building is able to tell and one that I'm going to try and trace today. But to understand the building's kind of deeper meanings, we need to think about this landscape historically. We need to think uh, about this building as a space that can kind of map London's early formation as a global city via the origins of shipping um, and the subsequent translation and transformation, I think, of um, an industrial landscape into a post-industrial economy. Okay, think of Canary Wharf, think of the big skyscrapers that constitute this part of London now. I think there's an interesting story about London's economic development we can map here. And it's important to do this because I think one of the key ways gentrification tends to be framed these days is not only the large-scale kind of production of urban sp- space for middle-class consumers. That's very much a, a kind of staple of gentrification's uh, under s- definition. But, but what's increasingly becoming the case is it's seen as a, a tool of urban development that is um, involving kind of construction on what Davidson and Lee's term, um, vacant land, okay, this idea that gentrification happens on vacant land these days is something I think this building and its construction can get us to challenge. Now, as I'm hoping it's kind of becoming clear in these lectures, London's a bit of a palimpsest. By that, I mean it really actually offers a vacant terrain on which buildings can be constructed. Instead, um, one of the key ways in which the city's topography can be understood is this phrase palimpsest. It's a kind of overwriting, a layering of meanings, um, a layering of kind of structures that have accumulated over time and can be seen at different levels simultaneously. Um, And perhaps the very essence of London um, stems from the kind of collected presence and persistence of all these layers that are on the surface but uh, arrived at different times. So if we peel back to uh, South Key, to the Docklands, to the origins of this part of London I suppose, we can go back further than this but I've chosen 1617 as a marking point for us where we have a largely rural and underdeveloped terrain, a kind of bucolic landscape I think, um, not the space that we now associate with uh, One Canada Square the HSBC Tower, the Olympic Stadiums, and of course, uh, South Key Plaza, the building I showed you at the start. There is, though, a slight hint of change in industry here in the kind of Google Maps of the 17th century. In the top right-hand corner, we have Blackwall Yard, which I've enlarged for you. And I think this small hint of the kind of shipping and docks that are entering into this area is significant, at this uh, time, this part of London, through its finance, its merchants and its trade, was establishing footholds in the so-called New World. The Blackwell docks were home to the East India Company, whose wealth derived from the huge difference uh, between the price paid for, say, pepper in the Spice Islands and the price it fetched in Europe and spaces like London. And this difference dwarfed the initial costs of the shipping ventures to the East Indies, etc. Okay, so pepper, for example, was seen as a really valuable commodity at this time. It was termed black gold, and we can really get the origins of mercantile capitalism in this this venture. And of course, this global expansion also headed west. In 1674, we have the kind of establishment of the British West Indies, and that brings with it new commodities of sugar and coffee, and of course, slave labour. And human capital. And London, we mustn't forget, is intimately wedded to the story of plantation slavery. And that's something I want us to think about a bit today as well. So these new commodities also led to the expansion of the docks beyond that little corner of Blackwall Yard into bigger uh, infrastructures, most obviously the construction in 1802 of the West India docks, the very ground upon which that South Quay Plaza, that 1980s structure, would be built. What's unique about these docks, however, I don't think it's the water, actually. It's, It's actually the warehouses and the kind of buildings that surround that water. Sugar as a seasonal good... Um, extracted from the plantations created by the British in the Caribbean, had to be stored in London to satisfy a year-round demand. And the result was the production of what Elizabeth Bishop has called a new species of warehouse urbanism, the historical origins of which originated in that very ground, that very landscape uh, of the 1980s South Quay Plaza. And Bishop helpfully goes into detail. She kind of Documents exactly what this warehouse urbanism meant and looked like. She talks about how the warehouses were located immediately contiguous to the docked ship. And these spatially contiguous warehouses with adjacent key space allowed the unloaded cargoes to be systematically and precisely handled. Goods flowed from the ship to the key to the warehouse in one simple sequence. Enclosed within a system of unassailable walls that surrounded and controlled the whole enclave. The only means of entrance and ec- exit was through a heavily monitored gate. Okay, so this is, this is the West India docks at, at the sort of start of the 19th century, a space of continuous industry, of constant movement, of seamless production, actually, but also a space that needed to be protected. And she hints here at security as being kind of key to the the infrastructure and the buildings in this part of London. And what's important to realise about the West India docks and about a location like South Quay is that it was actually centrally and deeply involved in the introduction of policing into an increasingly congested port. A high percentage of the material which passed through the docks was being stolen and the owners felt that the new science of police offered important weapons in the struggle for a rational political economy and the kind of punitive enforcement of criminal law. So the plantation owners not only built the massive impregnable structure of the West India Dock, they also paid for the city's first police force in order to protect it. At this time in London's history, South Key was patrolled by marine police and overlooked by two roundhouses that adopted a kind of architecture of surveillance that's reminiscent of Jeremy Bentham's panopticon. And if you go there, you can still see residues of this infrastructure today. I highly recommend it, actually. As such, the built environment of South Key, with its linkage between surveillance, commerce, piracy and slave labor, established elements of a connection between colony and metropole that narrowly, narrowly economic accounts of the period haven't really fully appreciated At this point in London's geographical development, globalisation was not a word that was widely known or used, but I think the architecture of South Quay demonstrates just one of the myriad ways in which this city was already reaching out across the world and bringing that conflictual and divided world into itself. So at the West India docks at South Quay, new forms of finance, insurance and commerce were being constantly invented uh, to meet the needs of industry. And this continues. In 1849, the introduction of the, the Garno trade, a trade kind of built around uh, fertilizer for agriculture, but also for, for munitions and gunpowder. This created a further development um, of, of the West India docks. Um, and the sort of remaining banks um, that had been kind of hitherto vacant, it, particularly around South Key, uh, were developed uh, substantially. Okay, so we have the construction of brick and Timber sheds that are continuing this kind of warehouse urbanism along this part of the uh, the, the West India Docks. Um, and in the 70s, these structures would then be expanded to accommodate offices um, and at times hydraulic machinery. The size and form and function of this was continually upgraded until the 1950s. But by the 1950s, um, Shed 19 and the sort of the south bit of the West India Keys, were actually deemed totally inadequate because the kind of double-storied structure uh, was unsuited to the mechanised working necessary for the expansion, the boom even, in containerized shipping that followed the end of the Second World War, and really revolutionised the future of shipping in ways that we still see um, today. So by the 1960s, um, this part of the Docklands, actually the Docklands more generally, were really becoming a space that was uh, filled with kind of increasingly outdated infrastructure, uh, disused uh, warehouses. And the commercial activities of the docks kind of decreased, along with it, unemployment increasing, reaching a kind of staggering 20% in the 1980s. So it's very much a space of industrial decline. And in the spirit of urban planning that gripped many post-war European cities, major plans for reconstruction were considered... And by the 1980s, the interests of the state, private enterprise and local residential communities, working class but increasingly multicultural as new immigrants arrived from, say, Bangladesh, these all collided as the Docklands became a site of one of the most ambitious urban development plans in Europe in the 20th century tellingly i think the kinds of infrastructure that characterized the redevelopment of south key were actually highly antithetical they were kind of oppositional to the historic landscape on which they were constructed if we think about those sheds in the uh, 19th century docks there's a kind of deliberate lack of mechanized technology there which made south key an in- Industrial site fueled by the sheer physical exertion of human labor. What we have with the modern 1980s design is an open plan, air-conditioned office space, which is actually designed with worker comfort in mind. Where the porous structure of the South Key warehouses allowed a seamless movement of cargo from ship to shore to storage, the facades of, say, South Key Plaza's offices were a kind of enclosed. And mirrored design, a great curtain wall of black mirrored glass set in a grid of blue powdered aluminium glazing bars. And it's hard not to read in this architectural shift um, London's larger transformation from the toil of industrial capitalism to the kind of refractive veneer of capitalism's late modern form. Nigel Thriss' kind of geography of Allure and Captain technology of Allure is very much haunting, I think, the architectural designs of the 1980s. Um, and this is actually reflected in the very first occupant of um, South Key Plaza, the Telegraph newspaper, which very much embodied the space's transition from manual labour to digital culture. Down on street, Fleet Street, around the corner, the presses were still churning out the editions of the newspaper uh, manually through a kind of antiquated printing press. Uh, In South Quay Plaza, the journalists were very excited that the typewriters would be replaced by video display units and uh, journalists and their advertising colleagues could make direct input into the computer for automatic printing. So I think even in the very technologies that we're getting in this building in the 1980s, we can see something of a shift in uh, the industrial landscape of of London. Now, what's fascinating about a building like South Quay Plaza it's also how, in a move redolent of Tom Slater's definition of gentrification, the concerns of business and policy elites are met at the expense of the existing urban residents. Okay, there's this conflict between the designers and the existing community. And this is really central to gentrification more generally. So the developers of South Key Plaza actually saved 30% of the capital outlay on the building. Uh, Telegraph were allowed a 100% tax allowance for capital spending on the building. And this was all enabled by the London Docklands Development Corporation, which was really a government body. And for um, a geographer like Sue Brownhill, um, they represented what she calls, quote, the flagship of the radical rights attempts to regenerate inner city areas by minimising public sector involvement and maximising the private sectors. For Brownhill, it's the election of Thatcher's Conservative government in 1979 that really underpins this private enterprise model of urban regeneration and allows it to take hold. And regeneration in the Docklands was the highest profile instance of this kind of new private enterprise-led initiative. So Brownhill talks about how the London Docklands Development Corporation came to be seen as the epitome of this policy, with its government-appointed board replacing locally elected councillors its lack of attention to the views and needs of local residents, its concern to attract high-value developments, and its ideology of allowing the private sector to play the leading role in determining patterns of land uses. Okay, so there's a real ideological battle underpinning the building and the construction of a space like South Key Plaza. Which certainly was one of these high-value developments. Its office accommodation its shopping mall, its quayside wine bars, and its leisure amenities. We mustn't forget them. Telegraph workers anticipated water skiing at lunchtime and windsurfing on summer evenings. These were all designed to meet the needs of a kind of new middle-class subject, hitherto little seen in this once industrial landscape of the Docklands. And there's undoubtedly, I think, a neoliberal logic driving this design process. And this is where the work of a, a geographer like David Harvey is particularly interested Interesting. He talks about um, describing neoliberalism as the convergence between the uh, interests of private owners, businesses, multinational corporations and financial capital. Now, the kind of logic or the myth at the heart of such neoliberal urban regeneration is that local communities, those who are already in the Docklands, will necessarily benefit through increased employment facilities and the like. But as the South Quay Plaza development demonstrates, this doesn't seem to have quite matched out in the Docklands. In this building, any skilled jobs that were created weren't for an existing community. Rather, they were job relocations from other parts of London, most obviously the Telegraph newspaper moving east along the river. The consequence of this was a kind of uh, a local, one might say indigenous, and we'll think about that in a minute, Population excluded from the development process. They were denied access to new skilled employment and offered instead menial tasks in cleaning and security. And as a consequence, many were alienated by the very symbolism a building like South Key Plaza and the Docklands development more broadly came to represent. The developers, they didn't, they were they thought about concreting over the water to create more land, but they realized there was something unique in the waterways of this part of London. So they're still present. The the water is still present in the docks. Um, But the actual history of the docks, its communities and its buildings, are effaced from the reimagining of this area, as is kind of redolent in this advertising campaign. This area will feel like Venice and work like New York. Okay. One of the problems with gentrification uh, and academic studies of it is the lack of attention they pay to the voices, the concerns... um, the grievances of that kind of working class community that's displaced by the developments. Okay? And I think this goes back to Ruth Glass, who, who came up with the term gentrification back in the 60s. And she talked about it as a, an invasion by the middle class in working class areas, and I think many of the academic literature that's followed her lead has really focused on that process of invasion and the kind of forces that underpin it, rather than thinking about the pre-existing working class landscapes and communities who were there. They're kind of left as kind of mute, um, passive observers of this this force that they can't resist. And for this reason, I find. A study like Janet Foster's study of the Docklands development really useful because it resurrects the working class voice and considers the tension that buildings like uh, South Quay Plaza could create Um, and I've given quite a long quote here because I think it's particularly significant in articulating some of these voices we don't often hear or see. So Foster talks about how The difficulty for many local people was that the Docks had shaped their culture and history over a period of 200 years. It was something with which they identified and in which their hard physical labour had played an important part. The new image of the Docklands as Wall Street on water was not one they found easy to comprehend, as this development did not embrace them. Indeed, the strong attachment which many felt towards the Isle of Dogs was a sentiment that was actually dismissed by the LDDC, the London Docklands, Development Corporation and she's got some testimony here for one of the community leaders uh, who argued that I made a statement about our land and the man from the LDD said that's not your land you didn't pay for it they don't understand that our land is a gut feeling on another occasion I made a comment about indigenous islanders this LDDC bloke got up and he said how long do you have to be here to be indigenous do you have to be here one week two weeks a month And I said, indigenous means to belong or to come from. It's a feeling and that's what you're missing. Please do understand what it means to us. But he laughs and he says, oh that, this is just old hat. That is dreaming, that's reminiscing, that is historical. You missed the boat, go away. So one thing I hope these lectures are doing is making you realize that buildings are as much about place making as much about humans, communities, and their relationship to the architecture and the land than they are about kind of aesthetics and design. The graffiti local land for local people was daubed around many of the kind of hoardings, many of the kind of construction hoardings that would uh, protect and surround a structure like um, South Quay Plaza as it was developed. Graffiti saying local land for local people. And I think we can sympathise even with the sentiment of these these messages. But there's also a worrying kind of nationalism underpinning This slogan. And I think we need to think about the docks as a historical space uh, that's been a space of nationalism and also of racism. The dockers, we must remember, were a community that came out in force to support Enoch Powell's infamous and odious anti immigration speech, in which he invoked the image of an English river foaming with much blood. The dockers reacted viscerally and visibly to Powell's image because, as Paul Gilroy has noted, They looked at the Thames every day. They looked at a river every day. It flowed past them and it helped constitute their traditions and their identities. So in the matter of local land for local people, we must think carefully and critically about who constitutes the Dockers' vision of that local, that local people. Something we need to tread carefully around, I think. The Docklands in the 1980s, at the time of South Quay Plaza's constructions, was not only a space of rapid redevelopment, it was also a space of enforced migration. Tower Hamlets, one, offer only policy, forced homeless families, most of whom were Bangladesh, to take up residence in those small pockets of public housing that actually were surviving the area's rapid transformation. The Barkentine Council estate, for example, was highly proximate to South Key Plaza's development, but it lacked suitable facilities, for example, halal shops for the new Bengali community. And alongside this, as Foster's study notes, the ethnic minorities perceived by many white working class people on the island to be getting preferential access to council housing. This generated a sense of grievance and anger, which was manifested in physical harassment. Yet the reality was, Bengali families, like other ethnic minority groups, were most frequently allocated the poorest housing after the longest wait. Okay, so I've kind of suggested that racism, I think, is a recurrent feature of the Docklands. um, And the hostile reception, which many Bangladeshi families received, was in many ways consistent with a longer narrative. But the angry reactions of many of the pre-existing white tenants in South Key should also be placed within the context of their ongoing powerlessness to affect the pace and type of change in the area's gentrification. Thus, the racism and physical violence that constituted South Key's early experiences of multiculturalism in the 1980s needs to be accounted for in the story also of local people demanding this local land in the face of the Docklands' development. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done on this, I think. I'm going to shift gear now and actually think about any of you who might have popped South Key Plaza into Google before coming here and discovering the building that comes up is not one I've talked about at all. If you do that today, the complex, the office complex with the pyramids, uh, it's disappeared. It's gone. It's no longer there. Instead, we have uh, a residential-led scheme now uh, taking place at South Key Plaza Still under construction, it will be developed by 2022, we're told. Um, But promising unrivaled luxury apartment living designed by world-leading architects, foster and partners. OK, London's youngest landmark is also how it's branded, which I always find fascinating, because anyone who's been to the Docklands will find how disorientating a place it is. It's, It's increasingly difficult to navigate your way around this part of the city, not least because it's replete with architecturally similar but also distinct towers, right? to the extent that this marketing image, you can't really immediately tell which is the new one until you realise, oh, it's probably the one that's shiny. And the anxiety of of its kind of um, blankness in this landscape of um, kind of phallic skyscrapers is perhaps registered by the, um, the need to call it a landmark, the need to use it as a kind of signpost to structure your navigation through that part of the city. But it also signals that the actual transformation of the Docklands is still continuing and continuing at speed, And the transformation of the industrial environment at the exclusion of that kind of increasingly working class, but increasingly multicultural community is arguably now complete. Instead of abating gentrification in the Docklands with a fresh supply of social housing, we have replacing the office blocks like South Quay Plaza. We have uh, residential skyscrapers um, for affluent Londoners. And if you go to South Quay Plaza, you'll see this in operation. You'll see this construction taking place. This is uh, from 2017. But you'll also see at the base of this construction project um, a kind of of out-of-place structure, Um, a shopping mall, one that replicates the the footprint of that 1980s predecessor, but one whose cladding and facade has been expanded, updated, modified slightly. And there's a reason for this. There's a reason that the shell of this shopping mall remains But to understand why, we need to um, go back to the 9th of February, 1996, uh, which was the night on which the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, detonated um, a huge 1.5 tonne truck bomb in the Docklands. It was actually the largest explosion in London since the Blitz of the 1940s. And I'm going to play you some footage of it now. Okay, this bomb marked the end of a 17-month ceasefire by the IRA. This is an organisation that had hitherto waged a bombing campaign in Northern Ireland, but increasingly in British cities like Birmingham, Manchester and London, and this had lasted for over 25 years. And this extended bombing campaign was part of the IRA's broader attempt to force political change, to get Northern Ireland to leave the UK and become united with the rest of Ireland. And the bomb at South Quay ended the ceasefire and as such marked the IRA's frustration that they hadn't been included in the peace negotiations that had been rumbling on uh, in the interim. And as many political commentators and historians have now concluded, the bomb at South Quay actually set in train a decision to allow the IRA's political representatives, namely Gerry Adams, Martin McGuinness from Sinn Féin, to sit at the negotiating tables, which ultimately led the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. And it's for this reason that, say, the BBC's documentary on the bomb uh, back in 2016 termed it the bomb that executed peace. So that's one story about the IRA bomb, but it's not the only one. As I said, the location in the Docklands was seen by the press as significant. In keeping with earlier IRA bombs in London, this attack ostensibly targeted the the Docklands as a space of London's new financial capital, a spatial significance that was carried most obviously in the skyscraper at Canary Wharf, that one Canada Square image that we still associate with this part of London. Uh, The Canary Wharf bomb is now really how this event in London's history is remembered, and it followed this logic of targeting big London buildings, uh, Bishopsgate, and the Baltic Exchange just down the road in the City of London being earlier examples. But, as perhaps you can make out in this image on the the left, the, the One Canada Square Canary Wharf building remained unscathed. In fact, the bomb wasn't placed anywhere near that building. It couldn't be placed anywhere near that building, because security around that part of the former West India docks was far too substantial. There were barriers a private security force, and one of London's most sophisticated CCTV networks, all encircling One Canada Square and preventing any terrorism taking place there. And I talked earlier about how the development of the Docklands represented a fundamental architectural shift from the industrial landscape that preceded that. Well, in terms of protecting its financial assets, this location doesn't seem to have changed all that much, the investment banks now housed in the centre of the West India docks were, and still are, protected by a kind of panoptic security that links back to the surveillance and security checkpoints once necessary to protect the sugar commodities housed in the very same location. The linkages to Britain's former maritime power weren't lost on journalists who reported the explosion. They called it a shot across the bows, for example, really drawing on that maritime history in the area. But in doing so, they also obscured the fact that this huge truck bomb was actually parked next to a very different building. It was parked right next to South Quay Plaza, down at the bottom of this image. Even here, there's a sense of trying to link it to Canary Wharf, even though that building was unscathed. And akin with studies of gentrification, if you read the work done on the Docklands bomb, you won't hear the voices and the story of how this working class and now increasingly multicultural community proximate to South Key Plaza was affected by the bomb. Instead, the bomb is figured in terms of its financial damage and its impact on the peace process. So in an attempt to kind of counter this overarching narrative, I'm going to kind of move into the final part of this lecture by resurrecting the voices of that working class community who suffered the brunt of the explosion that destroyed South Quay Plaza, the building we've studied today. In what follows, I'm going to show you some interviews I conducted in 2016 and 2017 with local residents who were victims of the bomb. They're from a larger video I made with artist Lucy Harrison, and this formed part of uh, an exhibition we curated in this part of London um, about the bomb in 2016, and i put a link on it uh, in the slides but also on the handout um, that accompanied them.
1: Normally, we took, um, I, I cleaned the toilets. So I'm normally do from the uh, second floor up to the eighth. But this particular evening, being a Friday, and I was chatting, and I thought, you know, I'll just take my time. And I come from the, from the eighth downwards, and just as I got to the second floor, I opened the door. And then, because it's all, it's got no windows, I just heard uh, pop. And then all the ceiling came in it was like the, the, the ceiling tiles came in and the doors was off its hinges like somebody had actually got the doors and ripped them off and i thought what the hell's going on here but not realizing what it was because the week before that there was a uh, a leak uh, and all the, all the water had been coming through the ceiling anyway so i assumed it was maybe I know, a gas explosion or something because it wasn't a bang it was just a, like a pop so i managed to sort of climb over to the to the, the door but when I actually went in the corridor, it was awful. There was an, an alarm bell, just, it was just like, well, it was alarm bell. There was no windows, it was, it was pitch dark. Um, there was all the um, blinds, was just all been shredded. Like, you know, like when they're just blowing in the wind. Like, it was just like a, like a film. And I thought, what the hell's going on here? And I just remember making my way to the, to the lift because there was a, a, a phone that was on the wall. And I remember picking up the phone and said to whoever was at the other end, can you tell them what's happening? And he said, who are you? I said, I'm a cleaner. And he said, so, he said, there's a bon- A that's gone off. So I panicked and I said, please, please don't leave me in here. He said, who are you? I said, I'm a cleaner. Norman.
0: Okay. So as Joyce's testimony kind of indicates, the explosion ripped through South Key and ripped through South Key Plaza, creating a shower of metal and concrete and splintered glass. Office blocks completed just 10 years earlier as part of the Docklands redevelopment buckled under the pressure, their windows blown open by the sheer energy of the explosion. The building that Joyce worked in actually jumped um, 10 inches off its frame, leading to the the architectural damage we can see on these images. But rather than heading towards the financial edifice of Canary Wharf to the north, the bombs blast actually went south and radiated into the nearby council housing at the Barkentine estate. More than 650 homes on this estate sustained structural damage. The front door flew past me, one resident recalled. Then I saw all the windows had been blown out. Local MP Mildred Gordon told the House of Commons that in terms of residences, about 1,000 windows had been destroyed, while the worst hit tower block, which is on the slide here, Topmar's Point, would cost many more millions to repair. Back at South Key, as much as 80,000 square feet of commercial property was left in ruins, the worst of which was at South Key Plaza, situated at the seat of the explosion. And the image... Here is of that seat of the explosion. Scale is is difficult to tell on this, but this little um, light stand is about the size of a a human. That's an entire wall that we can kind of see just casually lying uh, on its side. On duty outside the building that night, security guard Jonathan Ganesh was blown off his feet and he was deafened by the blast. I remember waking up, he said, underneath the, the rubble, and I remember thinking, am I dead? Two people did die that night. Ninayan Bashir and John Jefferies were blasted through two walls as they tried to evacuate their shop. It took rescue workers 22 hours to find their bodies amidst the rubble of the South Quay Plaza shopping mall. I've got some testimony here from Anand's brother Ayshan. So today, relics of the bomb are barely present in the Docklands. A commemorative plaque outside South Quay DLR can only really gesture towards an event that is architecturally illegible, since the bomb in 1996, this part of London has undergone considerable transformation. That kind of once postmodern, much maligned uh, building with the pyramids on top I began with, the 1980s South Quay Plaza has now spawned an even brasher vernacular that we can see in this image, this architectural vision of what will be here right at the side of Aysen's um, shop. Right where the seat of the explosion was, and that earlier image I was trying to explain the scale to you on. The damaged shops and offices were rebuilt in 1999, only to be demolished 16 years later as Barclay Homes began to develop the area. As I mentioned, South Key Plaza is now set to be one of the tallest residential buildings in Europe. According to their promotional material, the slender 69 ta- uh, sorry glass and steel tower will bring a new focal point. To the London skyline and provide a new reason to live in Canary Wharf. Branded London's youngest landmark, this development has sought quite consciously at times to efface any any residual memory from the site. Some aspects have clung on, however. Situated at the ground zero of Barclays construction site, the news agents where Ann and John were killed by the RA bomb still somehow survives. And that's where that footage I just played you was taken from. It's now managed by Anand's brother Aishan, And the function of these premises has evolved, becoming an eatery in response to local competition and changing consumer demands. I mean, that's an interesting story in itself. He reopened it as a news agent, And then Tesco moved in next door, getting rid of all his uh, customers, offering cheaper news. So he changed it into Baguette Express. And then Subway moved next door again. So he's he's still fighting, though, to maintain this structure. And the the, the shop's presence is really there as a tribute to those uh, who have suffered since the night of that bomb on the 9th of February 1996. And it's remained a kind of steadfast uh, tribute ever since its reconstruction. We will run it in their memory, should stated, and in memory against terrorism. I'm not going to let that go. It's now teetering on the verge of eradication, of course. It's threatened by the twin demands of urban renewal and market forces, most obviously carried by this newest landmark to that already bloated Canary Wharf skyline. But in some ways, I think in its current form, in the fragility of Aishen running it in memory to the victims of the Stocklands bomb. this shop actually is something of a fragile marker an important marker for us to understand a symbol of those precarious lives and painful stories that are really still searching for their space and place in history okay i'm going to end then a little bit earlier for you today thank you Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.